Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. It's your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today's podcast, yes, it is about ADORA, the clinical trial in non-small cell lung cancer where patients underwent surgery followed by chemotherapy and then they were randomized to osimertinib which is an epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitor or placebo and folks who received osimertinib did have improvement in overall survival with a very good hazard ratio however there was significant debate and heated exchange on Twitter and social media between doctors Nate Pinnell from the Cleveland Clinic and Jack West from the City of Hope. This exchange led to uh, so much um, discussion on Twitter to the degree that Adam Furstein, a reporter for Stat Magazine, did tweet on June 7, 2023, it's the year 2167, the first ASCO meeting held on Mars has just concluded without a hitch, despite rocket traffic from a nearby Taylor Swift conference at an orbiting stadium, and Nate Pennell and Jack West are still arguing about Adora. This tweet had almost 27,000 views. So you could really tell that there was a lot of different points of views that were being exchanged in a respectful manner, although the debate was heated a little bit. So I've asked both parties to come on Healthcare Unfiltered, and they both generously agreed. The goal of today's podcast is to talk a little bit about the pitfalls of clinical trials in general, because it is my belief that there is no perfect clinical trial. Every clinical trial could be criticized, could be argued against, and for, and this is really the way things are. But then we're going to use the ADORA as a platform to discuss these pitfalls of clinical trials and what can we really do about them? Are there opportunities to improve on these shortcomings so that can we actually move to perfection? Although I would argue that do not make perfect the enemy of good. So Dr. Nate Pennell from Cleveland Clinic and Jack West from City of Hope are on today's podcast discussing pitfalls of clinical trials, and teaching us teaching us some lessons from the ADORA study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and was a plenary presentation at the latest ASCO meeting. And uh, before I air the episode, I'd like to plug the show, ask you to please rate the show, subscribe to it, write a brief review. You can watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can visit my website, chadinabhan.com. Also, don't forget to check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search of uh, justice. Uh, check it out and let me know what you think. Without further ado, these two, Nate Pennell and Jack West on Healthcare Unfiltered. We'll start with quick intros. You both are well known in the field of oncology, but maybe few folks still have not heard of Jack West and Nate Pennell. So, Jack? Sure. Hi, I'm Jack West. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist, associate professor at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in the Los Angeles area. Uh, I'm also the web editor for JAMA Oncology. I do a few other things and uh, just kind of follow and uh, try to interpret the evolving landscape in in the lung cancer world. And Nate? 
Yes, uh, Nate Pinnell. I'm also a thoracic medical oncologist. I've been pretty much my whole career at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, where I run the lung cancer program and also am the vice chair of clinical research. And uh, just a to, to set the scene uh, in case people are expecting fireworks, uh, Jack and I have been really good friends now for probably close to 15 years. And um, we actually enjoy sparring on topic. So I'm hoping today will be and we're, an exciting discussion. We're committed to writing something, a piece together in the coming weeks that uh, will will kind of forge common ground. So even though we we have some differences, I think it'll be as instructive to see where we converge as where we diverge. Well, there goes my opportunity to get likes and retweets and everything. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't work. I need like, you know, I need more arguments, yelling, screaming, and some sound bites. Talk about COVID. We could talk yeah, about I mean, politics. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. As, hey, as my significant Cats other dogs, will, you know? yeah, my significant other will tell you that um, I have a, pathologic problem with arguing over everything, even with the people I care about. And so hopefully it will still happen. Okay, Excellent. perfect. Perfect. Okay. Well, you know, here's what I wanted to start with, because th th there are two concepts I just want, I, I want people to understand. Maybe I'm wrong, but I believe in two things. One is there's absolutely no perfect clinical trial. In fact, if you ever submit any clinical trial to any journal and you don't have a section on shortcomings and pitfalls of your own study, the reviewers will send it back to you and say, blah, 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 blah. That's one. And number two, I firmly believe there's a lot of things that we do in medicine and in oncology that is not based on randomized clinical trials, prospective randomized clinical trials. Am I off with these two concepts, Nate? No, I mean, uh, it, it's... It you know, we live in the real world. It's not possible to do something perfectly. And in fact, the more studies try to be perfect, the less sometimes they apply to the actual patients that we see. And so I, I actually am a fan of uh, relatively sparsely designed clinical trials that include a much more real world population. And, and uh, you know, we can, we can hopefully understand a little bit more about how that will impact the patients that we see. I I definitely agree with that. I I think that, uh, and and I'll say that a couple of the editorial uh, editors' notes that I've done for JAMA uh, Oncology over the last few years have have been on really the same theme of in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Sometimes, very often, I would say, just about every day in clinic, you have to make decisions that are not guided by randomized phase three trial evidence. Uh, and you have to use judgment and extrapolate from, from the evidence. And if all you have is retrospective and real world, that's not nothing. That's sometimes the best you're going to get and totally okay. I also think that we should dispense with the the fallacy that uh, the cross-trial comparison is anathema because that's what we have to do in the real world when you have randomized phase two trials for RET inhibitors and MET inhibitors, and you don't have a direct comparison, what are you going to do in real life? You're going to do a cross-trial comparison. So let's dispense with this delusion, this fallacy that that's not, not possible uh, to, to do. I also totally agree that you can't have uh, you know a, a prospective randomized trial that is perfect either. And, and 
besides the fact that you can't do that even if everything was static, we also have the fortunate challenge of of our clinical world evolving over time. And, and these randomized phase three trials especially tend to take years. And so in the world of Adora or many others, this is against a background of a shifting clinical landscape. And so we have to acknowledge that that's, that is part of the process. So I, I, I don't think we can aspire or should aspire to perfection. That's, that's not to me the goal. It's really just trying to identify what are some of the more reliable, foreseeable challenges and try to at least uh, accommodate those as well as possible. So the first thing that always when we talk about these trials that often gets heavily criticized uh, is control arms. To me, a control arm means that if I ask 10 thoracic oncologists, the 10 of them are going to agree and say, this is the proper control arm, which means that this is what all of you would use in thoracic oncology or any other discipline. But that's, that's, it's not always easy, but it, it, it's often being told that, you know, the control arm is inferior, it's not the right control arm, and so on. How true is that? Do you, I mean, how true is this, Nate and then Jack, in terms of deciding on the control arm? No, it's a huge problem. And especially when you have differing standards of care that change in different places in the world at different times. So I think the best example of this that I can think of is the innumerable immune checkpoint inhibitors versus chemotherapy trials in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. When the first ones came out, you know, the, the keynote uh, 24 study and the 189 and whatnot, the standard of care was absolutely chemotherapy. And so you could say in 2018, when all of these papers were coming out, that that was very appropriate. And then over the next seven years, we continue to see multiple phase three trials being presented and published and submitted for potential approval of new drugs, immune checkpoint inhibitor with or without chemotherapy against chemotherapy. And the argument is that, you know, there are places in the world where chemotherapy is still the standard and immune checkpoint inhibitors aren't widely available and therefore that's okay. And that is where, at least in the lung cancer world, we see a lot more contention about this because we would say now it's, it's, been a good five years that immune checkpoint inhibitors are the standard of care for pretty much everyone with frontline non-oncogene-driven lung cancer, and it, it really shouldn't be ethical to continue to do these studies no matter where they're conducted. I agree with that. I think, you know, you could use that. You could use ALK inhibitors and comparison against crizotinib, which is the same pattern. I think, you know, the CROWN trial showing that that lorlatinib is significantly better than crizotinib is, you know, essentially a foregone conclusion that is unhelpful to clinicians who have moved away from crizotinib for three or four years and have been using electinib, where the clinical question is and has long been, is there some incremental benefit to first-line lorlatinib compared to a second-generation ALK inhibitor like electinib or brigatinib or something? So, you know, and I... I also agree that uh, with Nate that, you know, the issue of chemo versus chemoimmunotherapy was extremely relevant in 2018 and 19. And by 2021 through 2023, became quite dubious as a control arm. Uh, so, yes, but, but, this but, does... Jack, but Jack, what do you do? Like you're doing a trial and then 
a trial comes from Japan or Europe that just changes the standard of care, maybe. And that was what you had in your control arm, the trial done in the US, let's say. I mean, do you just stop it, amend it? I mean, what do you do? This happens a lot. Not well, a lot, maybe I, not a lot. I, I think it depends where you know where the trial is in its process. I mean, if you're 90% enrolled, you you complete it and you just live with those caveats that this is not that informative. I mean, we do have trials, many trials of, uh, you know, Nate and I and all the other folks treating lung cancer have multiple competing chemoimmunotherapy regimens that are legitimately considered comparable. And we just have to understand that there's no head to head trial. And, and that's why we're left with cross trial comparisons or just going with our our preferred one, unless there's some reason to not. I would say that, you know, we'll get into Adora as one of those situations where I don't think there's any question that placebo after chemotherapy was the appropriate control arm. The real nuance or question of the control arm is, should there have been uh, you know, more accessible access to uh, osimertinib? And, and I would say that, you know, when you're talking about the amendment uh, in in spring in April of 2020 that uh, that was when the data had been kind of released and and uh, you know and, and before that time osimertinib was the standard of care the preferred agent by NCCN and overwhelmingly preferred in not just the US but in many many most healthcare systems that uh, I would have hoped to see the mandating of crossover at that yeah, point. Yeah, and we're so going to go, yeah, yeah no, we're going to get there because I think mm -hmm. in addition to the control arm, I think the second concept, I, I have two more concepts I want to talk about in general, and then we'll go into Adora. The second concept actually you already alluded to, Jack, which, which is the crossover. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I mean... In what trials, Nate, like we must do crossover versus trials where you think it's okay not to do crossover? I mean, I, I hear this all over the place uh, in terms of doing crossover versus not. Is there a sense for you that certain studies must mandate crossover versus studies that are okay not to do so? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, this is, uh, and, and we also have to um, differentiate crossover from subsequent treatment and trial. So, you know, when we think about crossover, we're usually thinking about, say, an incurable stage four study where someone is receiving a new drug. I, I would say the areas where crossover is probably ethically mandated is when you've already got a pretty good idea that your drug is going to be a very effective drug. You know, you've got maybe strong phase two data. You may even have, say, preliminary approval or something, and you're going uh, to compare it against an older standard because maybe that's required for regulatory approval and whatnot. And you want to make sure that um, in addition to showing that it's better from, say, you know, progression-free survival standpoint, that patients have access to the drug later on. I don't think that every drug necessarily needs uh, to be shown you know, to have crossover built in. I mean, especially if it's a really open question about your drug is better or not, you know, why would you even necessarily want to to have patients get access to that later on. Um, for, for adjuvant trials and other things, it's a little bit different because really what you're doing is you're looking to see the impact on cure rates and disease recurrence. And so, you know, at that point, depending on what your primary endpoint is, 
it's not exactly the same as crossover so much as how much influence you want to have on subsequent treatment after the patient's no longer on the study. So that's a, that's a slightly different discussion, but um, certainly relevant if we're going to talk about Adora. We will, but I want to, like the concept of crossover, Jack, in your mind, do you, do you agree? Like when, when would you feel strongly about it? I would say that if the treatment has certainly a proven benefit and is a standard of care in the later setting, whether that is as treatment for relapse disease, you know, in patients who relapse after early stage, or if you have a first line trial and you have, uh, you have a treatment that is approved, demonstrated to be significantly better in the second line or later setting, that is also a setting where crossover should be pursued because it is widely available or should be widely available, has a proven benefit. You know, in the trial, say, uh, Keynote 042, that was chemo versus pembrolizumab for a broader population that included patients with PDL1 low as well as PDL1 high. There was there was no crossover permitted in in that trial, and patients in the U.S. and many other parts of the world had immunotherapy as a an approved proven standard of care with a three month survival benefit and median overall survival compared to docetaxel. So at that time, immunotherapy after chemotherapy was an unquestionable standard of care. And I would say a, a real problem to not have that be available to people um, without jumping through great hurdles to get it. These are settings where when you have a therapy that is proven of benefit and it, you're really looking at timing or should be looking at timing more than access, anything going from being tested in the first line compared to second line or later use, or in, in the setting of Adora, earlier versus available to people in the at, at relapse, I think, is is where you want to have crossover. Not, not in a setting where it's of unclear benefit at all, but where we would routinely be pulling it off the shelf and have the availability to do so in much of the world based on evidence. Uh, it should be about timing and not about access. How about endpoints? That's the third concept I want to talk about. Um, overall survival, progression-free survival, disease-free survival, whatever. Do these matter in the adjuvant setting versus metastatic setting and in terms of how you design a trial, uh, Nate, in terms of deciding on your endpoint? Is there... Is there such a thing that if it's an adjuvant study, overall survival is a must end point? No, absolutely. And this is a, this is an important concept. And I, I would say, um, you know, I think everyone accepts that the, the most important endpoint is overall survival. Uh, that's what we call our gold standard. Um, and everything else is used as what we would consider a, a surrogate endpoint for overall survival with the assumption that an improvement in that surrogate will lead to an improvement in overall survival. And sometimes that's been proven to be true. And sometimes that's just an assumption. And it has a lot to do with um, how long it's going to take to get the answers. And so, you know, FDA, for example, has been very clear in that they support the use of surrogate endpoints because they want 
to get drugs approved and available to people when they have a reasonable chance of, of, of improving people's survival, but they don't yet have that overall survival information. So for something like Adora, we know that one, the treatment is gonna be three years of treatment, and then you're gonna to have to have some follow-up afterwards. We also know that for people who recur with metastatic disease, that the median overall survival, even in incurable stage four disease with osmertinib is 39 months. And so you can just add up the numbers there and see that you're probably talking about, you know, five, six, eight years before you would have mature differences in overall survival from the beginning of a trial. Whereas you might know very early within, as we saw on Adora, 24 months on the study, that there may be a big difference in the surrogate marker of disease-free survival. So it, it's really uh, depends on how much you believe that that surrogate endpoint is truly meaningful and truly is likely to lead to an improvement in overall survival. And I think that it is very appropriate in studies where there is very long potential overall survival to report out these surrogates surrogate endpoints and try to make decisions based on those with the caveat that you always have to, you know, make a clinical decision about how meaningful it is. Jack, maybe this is a good segue to just start talking about Adora a little bit more in detail. I mean, well, I think I, I think it's actually helpful to talk about Adora perhaps relative to others because we do want to have this be of general utility. And I think Adora is one trial in in the universe. It's an important one that I think illustrates some points and is different for from others. I, I think uh, so. Uh, it was I think on your podcast with you, me, and Nate three years ago uh, that Nate made the I think very appropriate uh, point that it's not just positive for progression or uh, disease free survival. It was enormously positive for that. And that should count for something as heralding a highly probable improvement in overall survival. And honestly, I, I conceded then, I, I think that's a very fine point that it, for years since then, you know, I have been offering and recommending osimertinib in this situation without overall survival yet, but based on Knowing what we know with with those limitations, I think that you know, a hazard ratio in the 0.17 or 0.2 range for DFS is is amazing. And and I think one caveat about that is it is in the middle of that was in the middle of of the treatment period. And Nate's been one of the leading people doing this research for more than a decade on adjuvant EGFR TKIs, I think one of the problems that we should have about DFS as an endpoint is you know, work he has reviewed and been part of has clearly shown that other EGFR inhibitors improve DFS, but fail to improve overall survival. And so this, this, is, this was known, it's been known for a very long time, for a decade, that you, that Lots of EGFR inhibitors will have scans look better, but they do not have not improved overall survival, which I think should have been a reason to at least co-prioritize, if not greater prioritize overall survival, not to mention the fact that overall survival, I think, should be the 
endpoint above all others in the curative setting. But we knew that that EGFR inhibitors up to this point worked while you were on them and failed to give a sustained uh, benefit beyond that. And I think that, yes, uh, it's very easy to envision that osimertinib could be increasingly effective for micrometastatic disease. I, I would find it very conceptually believable that the the benefit is longer lasting and potentially survival conferring, you know, even if it's for a finite period and stopped, but but greater in the adjuvant than in the macrometastatic visible disease setting. But I would like to just get the data to see that and not have that subverted by the FDA. I think the FDA does have a, a policy of you know, if it is plausible that there could be a benefit, we're going to wave it through. And I think that it is erring on the side of being overly gener uh, generous in, the, in that, you know, in contrast to Adora's DFS benefit, which is tremendous, uh, we have approvals for adjuvant immunotherapy in the last year that have been as underwhelming as Adora's has been overwhelming. I mean, we have but, approval but, but, for Pembro but, yeah, based but, on a DFS benefit of yeah. 0.77. That is a total yawner and, and doesn't even have a pretense of an overall survival benefit, but we're still offering it. And I think the problem, one big problem with FDA approval is their policy is we just want to make everything available and the doctors can decide. Well, that's mm -hmm. fine, except... Physicians in practice are not generally that nuanced in their discussions. They feel that if it's FDA approved, it should be mm -hmm. done. And that's not what the approval is predicated right. on. But right. the, and the issue with that, yeah, go ahead, Nick. I was going to say, well, first of all, you know, um, shockingly enough, I mean, I'm completely in agreement with Jack on this. I mean, the, the Adora study, there was a 0% chance this was not going to improve disease-free survival because we already knew that TKIs did that. The, mag the question was, was it going to be a, a big enough difference that it was actually going to eventually lead to overall survival? And so this is one of those things where, you know, uh, you look at 60 patients with ROS1 positive lung cancer and you give them crizotinib and, you know, 80% of them respond. You don't need a huge amount of data to see that you've got a winner there. And so when, when the Adora comes out and you've got a 60%, you know, uh, or, or like a, a greater than 50% absolute difference in recurrences in the first two years, you know, you look at that and you go, well, you know what, people might want to know this and might want to start thinking about using it because this is such a huge difference that I, you know, never really had a doubt that it was going to eventually lead to overall survival, although I definitely wanted to see that. Um, and so, uh, but I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the the perfect example is the adjuvant immunotherapy trials, which would have which have a, I would say, a, a, a much more typical difference in disease-free survival for what we expect to see in the past uh, from our old studies of you know modest disease-free survival that don't lead to overall survival changes, and um, and we shouldn't be carte blanche just approving and using drugs based on surrogate endpoints that we don't have a really strong feeling are definitely going to lead to differences in overall survival. Because in the adjuvant setting, that's really what you care about is improving yeah, survival. And, 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 and then with immunotherapies, we, you know, we, you even have subgroup analyses that are showing that there is no benefit for adjuvant atezolizumab for pdl one to 49 
FDA approval is there based on DFS. We have overall survival data showing there's no benefit, and yet people are doing it, um, you know, just because it got, you know, waved in, carried on the back of that high PDL one group yeah, that I is think, actually I think, performing. I think, I think you're both arguing for more rigor in terms of FDA approval, which I think we are all, uh, I think that's actually a different probably podcast because I do hear to Jack's point folks saying, let there be access to these drugs and have the physicians decide. And I think there's merit to this, but again, to your point, not every physician is going to look at the nuances of each particular therapy. But 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 to me, what was pretty surprising, so the Adora trial, and I, I think all listeners know heard of this trial, and I'll, I'll do some intro on it in, in the beginning. I did some intro on it. Despite the overwhelming, enormous DFS that Nate alluded to three years ago on this podcast, and despite the fact that overall survival was also positive in the last in the last follow-up, I think there were still many dissenters to the particular to this trial. And I want to get into this a little bit. I mean, you know, to, to me, it was like a no-brainer. This was a huge win. It was, uh, you know, I, I was a little bit surprised by how much chatter was about the possibility that this was a poorly conducted study. And I'd like to hear from both of you, because obviously, I, you know, Nate's opinion was that this was well done trial and uh, the results were uh, overwhelmingly positive. And I think, Jack, you were opposing that a little bit and, and suggesting that there are certain elements of the trial that were not done properly and could have been not, it wasn't perfect, uh, let's say that. So Nate, do you want to provide your opinion about the Adora trial? And then we'll hear from Jack. So a few years ago, we, we discussed that, uh, that it clearly dramatically improved disease-free survival. And uh, we saw some updated data that it re reduced CNS recurrences, which actually continued on over time. Uh, at, at the beginning of this year, we saw a longer-term update on disease-free survival, which did, as anyone who studies these studies, uh, this type of study knows, did show some closing of the disease-free survival curves after stopping at three years, although um, most of the difference was still preserved going out to five years. And then finally, we saw the overall survival results showing that there was a 10 to 12 absolute uh, percent absolute difference in overall survival at five years um, in depending on whether it was the intent to treat 1B to 3A versus stage 2 to 3A uh, difference that seemed to be widening as time went on. And so I think that this study was done uh, very typically for this type of study. I think, uh, um, you know, there was nothing unique or special about the way it was designed. I think it was conducted as well as it could have been. I think the company um, uh, did uh, the admirable thing in you know 2020 when they saw that there was a big benefit in, in saying that they were going to give access to the drug to the people who, who recurred. Obviously, you know that didn't lead to everyone who recurred getting the drug, but I think that uh, we can certainly discuss the, the, um, the problems with what happens with a long-term trial with changing standards of care and differing treatments at recurrence and how that might impact the final endpoint. But ultimately, I don't think it changes the final conclusion, which is that giving adjuvant osimertinib makes a huge difference on recurrences, that some of them appear to be durable, 
reductions in recurrences that lead to a very clinically meaningful difference in overall survival. And that's, you know, and, and I would like to start using what we've learned from this to start designing hopefully the next generation of trials so that we can improve on what we've learned here. Jack, what were your issues with the trial? Well, first I'll say, I agree the trial was positive. I think it, you know, was highly likely to be positive as, you know, as I already mentioned that when you see this DFS benefit, I think that it was not hard to envision that it was going to be enough of a benefit to, even if it eroded, to translate to a survival benefit. So even with its imperfections, uh, which I think are real and should be examined critically, uh, I don't think it it undermines the overall conclusion. Uh, I, I think that my real issue stems from osimertinib being clearly superior to other agents in the class. And that's really the issue that this was, has been, continues to be so much better than gefitinib or lotinib or other things that were previously given in the first line metastatic setting that I think it was too good to not make available to, to people. Now, so the issues. One, I think, uh, as we already talked about, I think DFS was a very dubious primary endpoint because it's not the one that we should care about most. And we had we had many prior trials with EGFR TKIs that underscored with great clarity and consistency that it is not necessarily tethered to overall survival in this setting. Even if it could be, Nothing about the prior work uh, suggested that to be the case. So it was a, a poor presumption to make. Uh, but with the benefit that was seen, I think it would have been uh, it was very appropriate to present this and and as we have kind of move forward with it, but still at least make it a mandated crossover because at that time and before that time, Osimertinib was around much of the world, and according to AstraZeneca marketing, the unequivocal best treatment for metastatic, you know, relapsed disease. And uh, it was what Nate and I and almost every other lung cancer oncologist or general oncologist in the U.S. was favoring, and not just the U.S., but in much of Europe and everywhere that you could get it. So I, I think that had the trial been what we called for in 2020 in the wake of the initial data was great just make it crossover and a test of timing and i will be praising it from the hilltops as early is better than late that's worth knowing it was not that trial and at the end of the day what we saw at the at the uh, pr uh at the plenary presentation which i think deserves to be scrutinized is that the only 38.5% of patients who had a relapse on the control arm ever got osimertinib. So yes, it was. But they got something. They got something. Th yes, but that's but getting a known inferior agent shouldn't be anything to be proud of. I think that that is, we knew better. Everyone knew better. AstraZeneca unquestionably knew better because they were promoting heavily that there was a best therapy and osimertinib was it. And yet 
what I think when you have 56% of patients getting a known inferior EGFR TKI versus 38.5% getting osimertinib, this clarifies two things. One, your crossover option was had plenty of resistance to it, that obviously these were people who could not realistically access it. It was by request only. And at the end of the day, it was hard to do. 22% of people got chemo. Who wants chemo in this setting uh, as opposed to an EGFR TKI? So when you're getting a known inferior TKI, 56% of the time compared to 38% with osimertinib and 22% are getting chemo, you, you're getting uh, an inferior crossover design and you're clearly showing it's not just attrition that people came in in a wheelchair and were unable to get treatment, which is a question. Would people be experiencing brain metastases and coming in with leptomeningeal disease? That wasn't the case because if you're well enough to get chemo or a different inferior EGFR TKI, you're well enough to swallow an osimertinib pill. So this is problematic. And I think it, it illustrates that a significant unknown component of the benefit that was seen is because these trials are being largely uh, conducted and enrolling patients who are just getting clearly inferior management outside of what is controlled by the trial. And uh, let me also mention, we haven't talked about staging, but the trial didn't mandate PET staging. You had patients with two stage two and three A disease. There wasn't uh, mandated we'll, we'll brain staging. MRI. I wanna, yeah, I'll, but I but I mean the yeah. fact is, I just want to get Nate to respond to the first. Then we'll go to okay. staging, because I think uh, Jack brought few points pertaining to the inferior uh, therapy and the right. chemotherapy. Uh, the one uh, Nate, in your response to this, the one this is just to help clarify to me, the inferior treatment to osimertinib. Um, is just in the metastatic setting, right? I mean, there has been no comparisons of two EGFR inhibitors in the adjuvant setting. So all what we know is osimertinib is superior when treated. But these in, patients right, present right. with metastatic disease. Yeah, so they, when you they, know, when uh, they relapse, see, yeah, it's yeah. not adjuvant. Right, it is, they point. are right. getting, yeah, yeah, they yeah. should be right. getting the therapy that he and I would provide. Okay, that so right. Nate, Nate, that's a very good point. So Nate, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I see this. Um, I, I certainly have always understood that this was Jack's uh, and, and other people's major criticism of the study. And so I, I think it's, this is why I would say, you know, you, you, this is a, certainly a point worthy of debate as to how this would affect things. And I think it's a larger issue in terms of where we conduct our studies these days that lead to the approval of drugs that are principally used in rich countries, but then they're not actually enrolling patients in the countries where the where the drugs are being most widely used. I mean, that's a big issue. So, so a couple of things though. So first of all, the study was designed in a very typical fashion for an adjuvant trial with a primary endpoint of disease-free survival. And so what that means is they enroll people, they give them the placebo or the drug, and then when they recur, they've hit their primary endpoint and those patients come off trial they're followed for a short time for any toxicities that might follow for that. And then after that, they're followed for overall survival. And that's it. That is the design of the study. Okay. So the study is not, uh, these studies are typically not built to treat and follow and collect data on patients for the lifetime of the patient until they die. Um, the way they would in necessary, it, it, perhaps in a stage four study. And, and so 
when people keep talking about crossover, there, there isn't really crossover in these studies the way they are built. Now, they could be. You could have designed the study with a primary overall survival endpoint. You could have said, we really care about whether early versus late osimertinib makes a difference. Um, and you could have said, you know, we will follow and mandate treatment at recurrence with osimertinib and we, patients will stay on trial and we'll follow them for that. But that, that isn't the way it was done. And that's not the way, to my knowledge, any adjuvant trial that I've ever seen has ever been done. And so it's, the company really wasn't doing anything different from what people usually do with this. The second question is access to osimertinib. So, you know, almost 90% of people in the placebo arm, when they recurred with presumably metastatic disease, did get a TKI. We actually don't know what percentage of people who recurred got some treatment. We know what the numbers of patients who got treatment are, but there probably were some people who presented with leptomeningeal disease or a broken femur or something and never got treatment and may have died. And that may have contributed to the difference in overall survival. All we know is of those who got subsequent treatment, 88% got an EGFR TKI, um, and that 43% of those got osimertinib. We also know that when the trial started, that osimertinib was not approved and available in a lot of places, and it became available over the first, you know, a couple of years into the trial. And that percolates through the rest of the world and becoming available but even though they're available, it doesn't mean that it's actually still widely used in a lot of these countries. And so there's no doubt that this is a, an example of unacceptable disparities between the kinds of things that we in the United States widely have access to and a lot of other places in the world do. Um, that, is, that, is, that is a good point, though. But I mean, is it is it something... I kept hearing on social media and in the press that this is something that AstraZeneca must have provided to the patient. It was an obligation of the sponsor to assure that every patient is being offered osimertinib. Is that what usually happens in the adjuvant studies, Jack and Nate? Uh, I don't. I don't think it is. Uh, I don't think that this is. Uh, you know. I, I think it. W if they had done that, we would have been like, "Wow, you know, that was really noble and great of the company to provide their, you know, best in class, you know, expensive drug that's standard in the U.S. and given it to everyone." And 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 they didn't um, until 2020 when they saw there was a big difference and they perhaps heard some criticisms about this and then perhaps you know that might have led them to to offering it at that point. And, you know, so again, that's a different discussion. I, I, I don't know that I would say that they were deeply unethical by not doing that, um, because I don't think that that was considered standard at the time that they designed this. I do think it's relevant to discuss how that might have impacted overall survival, since slightly less than half of the people who recurred with metastatic disease got, you know, perhaps an inferior TKI, I think it probably had a relatively minimal effect on overall survival because there's not a huge difference in overall survival between stage four patients treated with osimertinib and older EGFR TKIs. The hazard ratio in the frontline trial was only 0.8 for overall survival. Um, we know that the people in the osimertinib arm who recurred actually got osimertinib or, or got TKIs at an even lower rate. They, it's possible that their doctors may have felt that they weren't going to benefit from subsequent treatment, which we think is probably not true in people who recur after stopping adjuvant treatment. So, you know, there, there's um, a valid argument to be made that that could have had some impact on it. But ultimately, I think the overall survival was because fewer people were recurring and fewer recurrences lead to fewer people dying of cancer. Um, but yeah, uh, I see Jack's point and I, and I think it's a, it's a, an important question, but I don't think that it 
makes the trial deeply flawed. Jack, and does, I, this, does this, I wanted to respond to this, but in your response, I wanted to address, does this make Adora unethical trial? Because that term bothers me a little bit, and yeah, I'm no, moderator I, here, so I want to make sure you address this. It has percolated a little bit all over, and I think, you know, accusing a trial of being unethical is is a big accusation. So I'd like you to address that. Yeah, I I would not go so far as to say it is truly unethical based on the you know, the standards of what is typical. I, I agree with Nate that it is not necessarily the typical approach or the 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 least that is required, or it is not less than the least that is required. I think that the real issue to me is, yes, we have a system that allows you to uh, pursue primary endpoints that are less than what should be really clinically valued as the best ones that are, you know, what is the threshold for regulatory approval is dissociated from what we should want or expect. And that at the same time, the historical standard of what you can do as a company to run a global trial is a lower standard than what we should consider to be truly optimally ethical. And I would say if it isn't it isn't unethical, it is not optimally ethical. Uh, I would say that when you run a trial in parts of the world where staging is demonstrably inferior and knowingly is going to have patients with subclinical stage four disease because you didn't run a PET or a brain MRI and you then give them placebo, we know that, that they will have a, a worse DFS than patients who had did not have stage four disease or, or got osimertinib. We've already run Flora and know that uh, not just is it better than first line, it's better than placebo. So for all the patients who had a don't ask, don't tell staging workup, which we don't have a, a clear sense of what proportion didn't get a, a pet with stage 3A disease or a brain MRI that would be standard of care, not just in the US, but in much of the world. And, and we clearly consider not doing that substandard. That was permitted. That Jack, is, Jack, Jack, I, I know. Question. Yeah, quick question. In Adora, all patients underwent surgery, correct? Yeah. And obviously, some of them got most of them got chemotherapy, I believe, and 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 maybe the majority. Food. It wasn't the mandated. majority, right? Yep. My question to both of you, and I hope this is not a dumb question, but since we do the MOC and recertification, I need to know. You know, guys, I have to understand all of these things. <laughs> is it standard of care in the adjuvant setting, post resection, or even before resection? for patients to undergo MRI of the brain in the absence of symptoms? Like, do you do that on all patients or just 3A patients, like stage one patient? Uh, I, I think Nate and I, you know, we're just talking about facts here. I don't think there's much opinion here. I believe the 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 NCCN guidelines call for uh, these tests to be done for patients with stage two or higher. Okay. Um, not, I think that's it's, it's 
and well, that's although that that is prior to surgery though so this is yeah. part of part of the problem with this study is they enrolled you know after surgery um and potentially chemo so um you know the studies that would be done after someone had been staged had surgery and then potentially got chemo um would have been most likely a, i mean in the united states would most likely just be a chest ct the other thing you can make an argument, I mean, if you had, I mean, I, I get the point of occult brain metastases, but uh, just to play devil's advocate, if you are a patient who have undergone, who has undergone surgery, followed by several months of chemotherapy, that's probably not like after recovery, that's like six months. So if you had some occult metastases, they would at least... Uh, you know, appear, right? I mean, if you know, I mean, six months. Well, well first of all, it's not, it wouldn't be, it would be, you're talking about, what was it, Nate, about 70% of patients got chemotherapy. So uh, it was yeah. about, it was about 70% uh, of stage two and 80% of stage three patients. Yeah. And, chemo. and, and a lot less, you know, less than 50% of patients with stage one. So, you know, it was about a third, a third, a third on the trial. So, but you're talking that's three months of treatment, and I don't know that there was even a mandated uh, imaging study well, after three surgery. Months, but Jack, three months after you get a couple of months break after surgery, you get a thoracotomy. I mean, you get a lung resection. You're not going to get chemotherapy next week. You typically get it, you know, four to six mm -hmm. weeks after. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, yes, but... If you had micrometastatic disease, or it was, you know, you had a, you had a, a, a you had disease in, uh, you know, some soft tissue or something, and three months later, I, I don't think that that's the case. That you would presume that it would remain, that it would have to be clinically apparent and symptomatic because there was no built-in scrutiny looking for disease after the the surgery so mm -hmm. i think if mm -hmm. it was clinically occult and a patient underwent surgery unless you had a seizure you know you could you could have disease and and it could have been quite small but quite clinically significant as metastatic disease so i don't right. think that that obviates anything but you know i think that the at the end of the day to get back to i think the meteor question i think that the issues are we I believe should distinguish between what was considered to be indefensible or unethical and what is what we should hope for and consider mm -hmm. optimal for for true uh, eliminating disparities. Because when we have a trial that is run globally and has patients not get the staging that would be done in the U.S. and not get the treatments that would be given mm -hmm. in the U.S. or Western Europe or many other places that mm -hmm. we know are the best treatments. There, that it's not a question. When we permit that to happen, I think that this is tacitly exonerating the company and the oncology community that this is okay and we have a chance when we run trials to have the sponsor company just pay for the staging studies, which is a tiny drop of the cost of a month of osimertinib, let alone three years of it. And to, to run a trial that therefore, if it had been done in a way that is not otherworldly perfect, but just demonstrably, clearly, evidently better, it would have been just a way superior trial, one that mm -hmm 
that Nate and I would be speaking in unison, full-throated, saying this is way better because it shows that early is unquestionably better than late. I would love to speak with one voice on this, but the reason we have some differences is just the issue of they didn't do the things that were foreseeably way better that would have uh, that would have not exonerated the problems that we and perpetuated these problems, but would have improved the care for the patients and not capitalized. Because I think that the other thing we should acknowledge is when these trials are run in a way where the staging is is clearly worse and the treatment off protocol is clearly worse, and many, if not most of the patients are enrolled from those systems and not the places where they're going to be marketing it afterwards, those biases are all overwhelmingly in favor of the experimental arm. And, and I just think that we need to be honest about this. It doesn't mean that the trial wouldn't be positive, but I would just love to be uh, pointing to a trial that is positive, even if it doesn't have a hazard ratio of 0.49 for overall survival. If it was 0.67, I would be very, very strongly in favor of this if it hadn't taken those what I consider to be shortcuts or, you know, ethical, uh, you know, choices that that mm-hmm. just happen to be what are not I the mean, best look, choices. Uh, yeah, I want to I have Nate respond to this and then I have a comment about uh, the financial thing and negotiations with sponsors on trials. Go ahead, Nate. Well, I just want to say that I, that I completely agree. And this is this is a this is a huge issue that I don't think we hear discussed enough is most of the patients who get accrued to clinical trials that lead to approval of the drugs that we use that are very expensive and very effective and and whatnot are accrued in countries that um, those patients outside of the clinical trial might never have gotten access to those drugs, even, even, you know, later on uh, as part of their, their typical health system. And companies are, opening and accruing studies all over the world, especially in places that have really relatively limited health systems and access to care, because it's much less expensive. They can get a lot of patients enrolled on them. And in some of those countries, patients are enrolling on those studies because that's the best way they can get access to really good medical care. And that is um, a terrible thing. It speaks just horrible things about the disparities in access to the types of, of you know, amazing advances that we're making in cancer and, and that, that people worldwide are not getting access to good biomarker testing, good staging studies, you know, optimal surgery, uh, really good effective adjuvant consolidation or even treatment for metastatic disease. And, and, and um, those patients are leading to the advances that are allowing us to then access these drugs. And that's, that's something that I think is, is a massive issue that doesn't get discussed enough. Um, and, and that this is, you know, we don't want these trials to be positive because they are run in places where the disparity is with prevailing care. Yeah, you know. I, I think that that, you know, that that is to some extent a concern, you know, if the staging is substandard, I think in places like you said, where where uh, for early stage patients where they can't access the the optimal treatments at metastatic recurrence and how that might impact overall survival. I, I have a bigger problem just with the overall ethical issue of, of that this is how trials are being run and this is where all patients are being accrued. I'm less concerned that, for example, in Adora, I, I, despite all of these, I don't think that that ultimately changed you know, the interpretation of the results very much. Uh, I think it's just more of a big ethical issue about, is this the way we do this? And, and the FDA mandates 
that some patients are enrolled. And this is, this is, this is, I don't know if people realize this. The FDA requires that some patients be enrolled uh, in the United States on these trials. And so what happens is companies open the studies, enroll 90% of the patients in countries like we're talking about that are uh, lower middle income countries that have limited healthcare systems where they enroll patients very quickly. And then they put a small number of patients in the US on to say that they are broadly applicable across multiple populations and that's good enough. And the reality is, you know, it, but the flip side, of course, is it, it would be unmanageably expensive to do a 800 patient phase three study exclusively in the United States, considering how uh, much bureaucratic burden we have and how expensive mm -hmm. it is to run trials here. I mean, that's there's a there's a reason why companies are doing the MEX US and and that's partly the fault of the healthcare system in the US as well. So this is this is a massive problem without good solutions. But I'm glad that we're getting a chance to to Highlight yeah. yeah, and and Jack, going back to your point in terms of the additional cost of imaging, I mean, you all, we all have run clinical trials, and you see how the negotiation goes when it comes to the, to the to the cost, and uh, you know, most academic institutions will add twenty five to thirty five percent overhead uh, to the cost of enrolling one patient, and and. Not defending that how costly it is, but uh, Nate did you know again it, it, we add so much barriers to it that uh, you wonder actually if we bring those down would that lead to more uh, trials being conducted in the U.S. I don't know have the answer to that, but I, but I believe there's an opportunity there to improve on it. No, there absolutely well, I, is. Yeah, I think I mean uh, we we enroll a tiny fraction of people in the U.S to clinical trials. I mean, it's less than 10% of people enroll in clinical trials, despite the fact that that's really, um, you know, people get better care on clinical trials. And, and a lot of that has to do with the bureaucracy and the difficulty of doing clinical research in the US right now. I totally agree. I think there's just literally a big, there's a lot of room between token U.S. enrollment, which is essentially what we're talking about, and literally just token enrollment, uh, because I think we are talking about the 80-90% enrollment from lower middle income countries, and, uh, and having it be overwhelmingly U.S., which I think our system is a travesty. Uh, it's a temple of inefficiency and cost waste. And if we could improve that that balance and then maybe look you know at subgroups and see if there's significant differences based on where patients are enrolled and other patient characteristics that would be informative but i think that we can't ignore that the system as it is now is not only more cost effective but is you know it has several strong biases that favor the the investigational arm when you run a trial in these other places. And so I think that we we just cannot ignore that this is a, uh, you know, a very convenient truth for these companies as well. It's not just, I think, about the prohibitive cost, but that you know, it wouldn't be this way. They would not uh, have this this imbalance if it if it disfavored the investigational arm rather than favored it. I'm going to finish with, uh, with uh, I was trying to find it. I couldn't find it, but you probably both have seen it. Uh, Adam Furstein, he's a reporter uh, for Stat uh, Magazine, which I actually like that outlet. 
But as you both, you and Jack were having these banters on Twitter, he he tweeted something that made me laugh. He said, you know, he just tweeted uh, another trial and these two, like he, he put in a tweet saying it's, you know, the year is 3050 and a trial came out and, and we, we still have these two arguing. I don't know if you remember this, but it yeah, really made me laugh. Oh, yeah. It yeah. We have, colony, we have colonies on Mars and Jack yes. and Nate Pinnell are still arguing. About yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, he, it was really funny. So, uh, but I can't really find it to, to, to quote him exactly. But, um, you know, for folks who see you, I guess, on social media, I mean, I think sometimes it's, you know, we, we kind of feel that you are in each other's throats, just like, you know, almost getting ready to kill each other. So this is an opportunity to tell people who are listening to the show um, uh, what you're planning on writing about and, and how, you know, do you agree more or disagree more on certain things pertaining to thoracic oncology? Maybe we'll start with Nate and then Jack. Uh, I think in substance, there is very little space between what Jack and I think in terms of how we treat lung cancer patients and how we interpret the results of clinical trials. Um, I think that there's a big difference in how uh, passionately we uh, state our opinions publicly about things. Uh, I think uh, I tend to be a little more um, conservative and measured in how I uh, put myself out on social media and my reaction to things. I made something like, oh, maybe uh, concerns about something like that. And Jack will come out and be like, I can't believe they did this. It's unbelievable, uh, <laughs> unacceptable that they would do it. And, and, it's, uh, and I love it. I really, I really love his passion. Um, sometimes I get on the wrong end of it. And that is uh, uh, led to some conflicts in the past, but nothing that uh, we haven't been able to overcome. I found the tweet, Jack, before you respond to this. Uh, it's Adam first, and he says, it's the year 2167. The first ASCO meeting held on Mars has just concluded without a hitch, despite rocket traffic from a nearby Taylor Swift conference at an orbiting stadium. And Nate Pinnell and Jack West are still arguing about Adora. <laughs> that is funny. You got to give him that. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, somebody, I think. It got 26,000 views. <laughs> yeah. Well, somebody had said in the comments that they they thought it was in poor taste or offensive. I didn't. I thought it was just funny. And um, I, I mean, I'll just say we've already talked about how I think at its best, I'm actually concerned, disappointed, and, you know, uh, just wary about what's going to happen with with X slash Twitter, um, which I think has been losing momentum as it becomes a uh, it changes its personality. And I, I'm hopeful that the medical community will will stick with it and 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 not succumb to the the political challenges of it. But I think at its best, Nate and I over years have, uh, yeah, we've debated and sometimes it gets heated, but honestly, I think it is the very best of what you can get from public discourse. I mean, Nate and I sharpen our arguments and and refine our views. I have mentioned that, uh, you know, when Nate said on this or he said on other things on online, you know, this is the, it's the magnitude and you've got to deal with the probabilities that has that and other things have made me reflect on things I've said and think differently. And I don't think that's wishy-washy or flip-flopping. I think the very best of 
of academia and science is incorporating new data and seeing things differently rather than being completely wedded to them. And what often happens uh, is that Nate and I, regardless of our different styles of of communication, end up seeing enough of the other person's side and 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 uh, finding common ground. I mean, we are going to be working on uh, an article together uh, that's going to talk about you know some of the victories and challenges of Adora and. I come away from this encouraged that we are more similar than different. We may emphasize somewhat different things, uh, but I think we both see both arguments here. Can I say one quick thing though? I want to say on our last debate on Adora back in 2020 on this podcast um, or on one of your podcasts, uh, I was resoundly informed by everyone that I lost the debate to Jack on that. And yet in the debate, he clearly said, yes, I will use Osmertinib based upon these results because they are so overwhelmingly positive. I'm like, well, how could I possibly have lost the debate when he basically conceded it? And yet still, because he's so passionate about these other topics, I, he ended up- No, uh, but I, I think- I, I, It wasn't I, from me. I yeah, mean, I, I didn't I think say my that. Issue and I don't, social, I don't think we're- yeah, should be against each other necessarily. Yeah, yeah, but as the moderator of this podcast, and I think my issue with social media is actually the fact that there are many patients, family members, and others who actually watch and read um, these discussions. And where I wor- what I worry about is when we heavily criticize a particular trial, and as we started, no trial is perfect, and you are a patient or a patient advocate or a family member, you start thinking, my gosh, these are evil people. AstraZeneca is evil for doing this, or I received inferior care, or I wasted my time in a trial. That's where I want to make sure that whatever discussions we have, we need to be cognizant of the fact that there are patients out there who are really reading every word, and words do matter. That's my issue. And I, and I will say that part of the reason I got so passionate on uh, Twitter about the discussions around Adora this year is I was seeing some of the discussions getting to the point where people were beginning to reply, oh, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced now that this is really beneficial. I'm not going to necessarily recommend this to my patients. So I'm like, whoa, we can have a discussion about how important this is and what things might, you know, uh, but I don't want to overlook the science of the trial and what it shows. And, and, you know, uh, so, so that was part of why it got as heated as it did. And Chatty, I, I, you know, I understand where you're coming from, but I think you, we all need to acknowledge that the physicians, the sponsors, patients as stakeholders, we don't have completely resonant uh, goals here. And, and the fact is the companies are running their trials. You know, their 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 goal is to help patients. Sure, but it is to get an indication, a positive trial that will lead to use. And if the longer you're on a drug, especially if it's expensive, the better for the company. And you know, there is a goal of the primary goal is to meet the minimum requirement to get approved. 
And then as long as it is credible enough to be used by the community. And I would just say, as the oncology community, we need to acknowledge to examine when the minimum required to get approved and and put a bullet point on the conclusion slide that X is the first drug to show Y and should be used all the time based on uh, an endpoint that we didn't decide is the best one, but in closed meetings with FDA, they did. That is not the same thing as what is clearly best for patients. And uh, we should should maintain independence about uh, and and not not be just you know waving our hands and blindly accepting that because FDA and a company have considered something acceptable that they will that that we should accept it at face value. So I that's why I think we should think for ourselves and I don't think that raising questions is, you know, sacrilegious. This is a great way to end this podcast. I really appreciate you both coming in. Uh, you know, you're going to come back again, maybe next year, maybe in a couple of years. Because I will tell you, know. I've worn out my T-shirt from my last time. Yeah. Well, well, then it's time to send new T-shirts. I, I'm going to suggest we talk about something not Adora. So I yeah, think, no, uh, yeah. Well, we did talk about other things as well. I know we did. I know. Hopefully and we will. Just, and then, but I think uh, that, you know, we shouldn't I, just reprise this every two or three years no, to but look I, at follow-up. I think, there was, I think this was needed. I feel like this was needed. And frankly, I had a lot of requests, honestly, from listeners to bring you both on. And it was very clear that there's a need for it. And I appreciate you taking the time and uh, time to send new T-shirts. I just need the addresses. And Will don't do. forget, don't forget, get your MOC questions right. Osimertinib is the right question right now. Yeah, well, the problem is that uh, it may still be too ambiguous to figure out what they're asking. <laughs> right? So even if you know all the data, that's yeah. the problem I have. Okay. Thank you well, so much for coming on. Great seeing right. you guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thank you to Nate and Jack for coming on this podcast. They were on this podcast in 2020 when we were dealing with COVID-19, if you remember, when the first presentation of Adora took place, showing the improvement in disease-free survival. Three years later, they came back on Healthcare Unfiltered and certainly made it well worth your time, my time, and their time. I'm very grateful for their appearance, and thank you so much for being on. I also want to make sure that you find this show on all podcast outlets, and don't forget to rate it, subscribe it, write a brief review, and let me know what you think about this podcast, this episode, and others. You can direct message me on Twitter and reach me by email on chadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Before I leave you, I'll let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Winston Churchill. Attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. Until next time, take care.